Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. It's estimated that more than a quarter of prison inmates in this country suffer from a serious mental illness. Each year, there are an estimated 2 million people with serious mental illnesses admitted to jails across the nation. Almost three quarters of these adults also have drug and alcohol use problems. Once incarcerated, individuals with mental illnesses tend to stay longer in jail and upon release are at a higher risk of returning to incarceration than those without illness. More than a dozen Pennsylvania counties have agreed to take part in the Stepping Up Initiative, which is a program designed to reduce the number of people with mental illnesses and keep them out of jail. Let's uh, talk to our guest today. Joining us is uh, Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel. Secretary Wetzel, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is Richard Cho, Director of Behavioral Health at the Council of State Government's Justice Center. Mr. Cho, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. Also, uh, Brenda Carol Penyak is deputy of the County Commissioner's Association of Pennsylvania. Ms. Carol Penyak, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. We very much appreciate the opportunity to participate. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I, I think any of the three of you can address this question, but Secretary Wetzel, I'm going to start with you. We kind of um, you know, have that overall view of this, and we've actually talked about this on the air before, but I've seen a number of quotes from people in corrections that have said, in effect, that prisons are the new mental hospitals or asylums. Now, that may not be the terminology we use today, but the point being that many suffering a mental illness who maybe were institutionalized in the past are now behind bars. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's it's that simple, but I think if we're, we're just trying to do shorthand, absolutely. Our numbers of individuals with mental illness in state prison, it's 29% of our population now. The county jails, it would be higher. Um, and I think that number has risen. And I think why I'm so excited about this stepping up initiative is this has been an issue forever. I, I mean, I've now senior statesman, been in, in the field for this is my 28th year. And we've been talking about this issue forever. This approach with the state and the county partnering, uh, using this vehicle of stepping up, which is a real data driven approach, allows us to turn this issue into a problem. And what I mean by that is we can't we have not done a good job of specifically defining how many people with mental illness are coming into our system how many were known to the behavioral health system before they came in and what's the cause so we talk about this and every every criminal justice person you talk to this is top on our list right of issues and and concerns but we haven't quantified the problem and you can't get a solution if you can't even agree on what the problem is now, you say forever. You're talking about forever for you in your career, because actually one of the big changes that occurred happened probably 40, 50 years ago. Used to be that uh, those who were diagnosed with a mental illness, and maybe even not diagnosed, but suspected to have a mental illness, were sent to an institution. And we know that many times there were abuses that uh, the treatments are nowhere near what they are today. and But then we deinstitutionalize, and it seems like many of those people who would have gotten treatment, or maybe not, uh, have gone to prisons now. It seems like we need to find something in between, and this sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I'm going to channel my inner uh, Ted Dallas here, their Secretary of Department of Human Services. I, I think institutionalization should be the last option. 
but uh, trying to understand where gaps in the behavioral health system lead to people coming into jails or prisons. I think we spend our money much better that the first time that government has to touch an individual, be it on the behavioral health side or criminal justice side or both, let's figure out the path to get them on the right track to be good citizens as early on as possible. And the rubber meets the road at jails. We spend a lot of time because the state budget is $2.5 billion. But I got to tell you, that money spends a heck of a lot better in counties at jail earlier on in someone's life of crime. All right, let's talk to uh, uh, Brenda Carroll Penyak with the County Commissioner Association about the county level. And I'll, I'll just have an open-ended question to you: uh, What about the county level? Uh, you know, Secretary Wetzel just said that we need to get to many of these people who are suffering from mental illness at the county level very early on. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And what we've been hearing and, and seeing from the counties. Uh, is an increasing concern about jail being used as the treatment modality, the treatment option, because there really isn't, um, you know, a good diversionary pattern that happens before we get to that point. So we are seeing increases. The interesting thing from the county perspective in Pennsylvania, the counties also administer our mental health uh, programs. So what we really haven't done is uh, coordinate or expect those two systems to work together uh, with the problem that we're now seeing in jails with this increasing population, uh, Secretary Wetzel pointed out, finding out whether there was a previous touch with a community-based system where diversion could have occurred, uh, and having that data is going to be crucially important for us to be able to figure out what changes we have to make going forward. Again, you know, the community system for folks who are not criminally involved has been stressed. Uh, there have been um, numerous cuts to the funding uh, that counties expect and, and have received for a very long time uh, to provide those services. So, you know, all of our systems are challenged. But, again, the data we believe and more counties getting involved in this initiative will help us direct those resources so that we can divert people from entering the jail in the first place, which is also uh, a very uh, strong goal of the county commissioners. Scott, if I could just add one thing. I think Brenda pointed out something that's really important. It's clearly, we've cut money to the behavioral health system, but let's not act like we're really cutting money because we haven't cut money at the state prison level. Even over my six six years, our budget has increased from, I think, $1.9 billion to $2.5 billion. I mean, the truism is, for these individuals, we're going to spend money. But from a, even a fiscal conservative standpoint, we should spend money once. And, and when we rob Peter to pay Paul and, and we rob the front end of the system, we pay for it on the back end of the system at a much higher rate. And, and most importantly, and what we have to keep in mind is people leaving our system more likely to commit another crime. And so, Brent, I, I couldn't agree with Brenda more. But, you know, Secretary... You know the realities of state budgets, and uh, and you know the county counts on the state for uh, a lot of the funding uh, dealing with these human service programs and prisons, for example. But the reality is, is that we have a tight budget. We have a very tight budget, and it is hard for the legislators, maybe even the governor, to look long term. Because we have a you know a three billion dollar uh, budget deficit that we have to fill right now, I mean I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just pointing out the reality is, and you are well aware of the reality that 
it is it's hard for a lot of people to look long term when we have short term problems. Yeah, so I've responded that two ways. Obviously, long term thinking in Harrisburg is the next election, so more than fifty percent that's two years. Right. But if if that's the perspective we're going to take in trying to build a better Pennsylvania, we're going to be in a bad bad way. But I think secondly, where where I think we've come up short, and by we I mean uh, counties, I mean criminal justice professionals. We have not made a strong data case that we can spend money and and invest money in a behavioral health system and see a benefit at the county jail budget and the state prison budget. So I think what this opportunity that uh, the Council State Government Justice Center is really bringing us is an opportunity to make the data case, to, to draw a line and say, look, yes, if we invest in this service in uh, Dauphin County, which is where we're doing this, um, we're going to have less people coming to jail and ultimately less people coming to prison, and that's a good investment. Let's bring in Richard Cho, who uh, is uh, the Director of Behavioral Health at the Council of State Government Justice Center. And uh, I want to talk about the, the Stepping Up program. Mr. Cho, what is Stepping Up? Uh, Stepping Up is a national initiative. Uh, it's something that uh, my organization, along with the National Association of Counties, uh, and many other partners uh, launched uh, back in 2015. And it was really in response to what we are hearing from uh, county leaders and from state leaders across the country that, uh, as Secretary Wetzel mentioned, uh, we've confronted the fact that we have uh, a mental health crisis in our jails for, for many decades now. And we know we can't uh, continue to go down this path of pursuing uh, small-scale innovations to try to tackle this problem. Uh, we need to get to uh, bigger results. Uh, we launched this initiative uh, as a way to uh, elevate the uh, issue uh, and, and uh, bring national attention on this. Uh, it's hard for counties who are grappling with these uh, crises to really tackle this in isolation from one another. Uh, what we've tried to do is to try to create a national network to show counties that they're not alone in tackling this, uh, and then to create a network where counties can actually learn from one another. So that's first and foremost what we've did. We, we issued a call to action. Uh, we called on counties to, to step up and to sign on to this goal of reducing the number of people with mental illness in jails. Uh, and we've had a tremendous response. We have over 350 counties who've um, actually passed resolutions committing to the goal of reducing the number of people with mental illness in jails. Uh, we've created a national network uh, of people who are uh, supporting this effort as well. Can I interrupt for just one moment? When you say that uh, you exchange information, counties exchange informations, information, what do those counties learn from one another? What can they learn from one another? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, what we're trying to do is to change the way that we're approaching this problem from, as Secretary Wetzel mentioned, you know, just an issue that we care about to something that we can actually uh, size, get our arms around the size of this problem, and then use our data to really determine what the solutions are. Uh, you know, we we got to move away from thinking that there's panaceas or silver bullets. Uh, most counties mm -hmm. Uh, to date have, have done a lot of great innovation, but uh, a lot of the innovation has been on the small scale, uh, small pilot programs, mental health courts, uh, crisis intervention training for police officers. Uh, and I think we need to move towards uh, not thinking that one, one program or one fix is going to solve this problem, but rather thinking about a continual process of system improvement that focuses on four key outcomes. First, are we having fewer people coming into the jails uh, who have serious mental illness? Uh, once they're in jail, are we actually shortening the length of time that they spend there? Uh, third, are we connecting more people to treatment uh, and services and housing? Uh, and fourth, are we reducing their recidivism? We want to create a way that counties are using that kind of dashboard of four results to really drive their progress um, forward. And I think it's using that data-driven framework that will, is what we're hoping counties can learn from one another. When you say serious mental illness, whenever we discuss this issue, I want to point out what that is. What is serious mental illness? 
Yeah, I think, you know, lots of people who are in jails have mental health um, issues, um, you know, as, as any one of us uh, would spend a, a couple nights in jail, would, you know, we'd have trouble sleeping, uh, uh, we'd have some anxiety. Uh, that's different from people who have a diagnosed um, uh, serious mental illness, which uh, means uh, two things. One is that they have an Axis one diagnosis uh, on the, the, the uh, DSM-5. Uh, in other words, uh, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorders, uh, bipolar um, disorders, major depression, uh, those kind of, uh, kind of serious um, conditions, as well as um, having some uh, pattern or history of um, those, those uh, conditions being uh, uh, severe and, and chronic. Um, it's, it's really uh, the, the definitions that, and, and there's not one definition of serious mental illness that uh, many states use, uh, but really, uh, we're talking about people who have um, severe needs, and that's that's the population that I think needs to be the focus. That's the population that uh, jails are struggling to be able to uh, to manage, and that they know um, jails are not the right place for uh, providing treatment for this population. All right, let's take a phone call. Let's go to Susan. Susan, you're on the air. Hi, thank you. Um, I recently read the book A Mother's Reckoning, that by, written by Dylan Klebold's mother. He was one of the Columbine shooters, and she said. She repeatedly referred to, rather than mental health, brain health. Because mental health issues sort of seem like it's disconnected from our body and it's not uh, solvable or treatable. And I just wonder, if we continue to refer to these problems as brain health issues, would we look at them differently? Thank you very much for the call. Mr. Cho, what about that? Yeah, I think I think the, what the caller is referring to is really the fact that uh, I think the general public doesn't have a great understanding of, of mental illness, and uh, there's an assumption that it's somehow uh, something's wrong with people or that it's a moral problem. I think the, the science on mental illness has gone uh, come a long way over the last 30, 40 years where we've begun to recognize that it is a, it is a brain disorder and there's a, a, a physical aspect to it. And frankly, uh, that's what enabled us to have the right kind of treatment, treatments, um, what people are able to do with uh, pharmaceuticals uh, to help people manage their symptoms. Uh, we've seen dramatic improvements in a, people's ability to recover from this illness. And I think once we start to understand really what mental illness is about, that it is a disease, uh, that it's something that is uh, treatable, that people can achieve recovery, that's when we can start getting away from our fear of the illness. And I think that fear is really what's prevented a lot, us from uh, implementing the kind of solutions that prevent people from having to go to jail. Secretary Wetzel, uh, we know that uh, when it comes to mental illness that there is a great stigma. Uh, maybe not as much today as there used to be, but there still is a stigma. Does that exist even in prison? Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things as, as you know, we got sued over our, our uh, treatment of mentally ill individuals and made significant changes within our system. We, we mean Pennsylvania. Yeah, Pennsylvania Department of right. Corrections. Um, one of the things we really focused on is trying to destigmatize and use destigmatizing language. Um, and I think the language, I think the, to the caller's point, the language we use is important. And um, one of the things, to, to give you a real granular example of why this is needed in Pennsylvania and why the state chose to invest in this county program, this county-focused initiative, is that even within a county, we have often have arguments between the warden and the head of the behavioral health because the warden says this person's mentally ill and the uh, head of behavioral health said they don't meet our definition for mental illness. So if we can't even talk the same language within a county, we, we can't move forward. So again, by pulling uh, data sets together and agreeing upon a definition, agreeing upon language, and part of this is to continue to destigmatize both, hey, both this and addiction. I mean, we're, we're in the, uh, our, the worst opioid crisis ever. 
So if we ever had a chance to destigmatize behavioral health issues, it's right now because so many people are being personally impacted by it. Mm-hmm. And, and okay, now you're talking about from uh, an administrator's point of view, probably uh, those who who work in the facility in the institution itself. But what about amongst the prisoners themselves, those who are behind bars? Is there a stigma? Absolutely. I, there's not. There's nothing from a cultural standpoint that is super dissimilar to the community. Um, so I, I explained being in, in prison or jail, it's like uh, for, for those of you who are of, of age going into a bar, you, you can see the people who are going to be troublemakers and avoid them. And you can uh, see the quiet place. And if that's where you want to go, that's where you want to go. We have the same things within prison. We have um, because such a high percentage of our population, I mean, a third of the population are, are mentally ill. Some of the things we do to mitigate that is house people together train inmates to be support for other inmates and those kinds of things. But yes, yeah, stigma exists even within the, the walls of our prisons. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about a new program to uh, help the, the mentally ill or those inmates, where I should say those uh, who have been charged with a crime and have been diagnosed with a mental illness, to stay out of jail and to get treatment. Our guest today, Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel. Richard Cho, Director of Behavioral Health at the Council of State Governments Justice Center. Brenda Carroll Penyak, Deputy of the County Commissioners Association of Pennsylvania. We have a few minutes left in this portion of the program. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. And uh, on Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Uh, Brenda Carroll Penyak, I want to bring you back into the conversation um, Mr. Cho uh, mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, there are 350 counties across the country that are participating in the uh, Stepping Up initiative. Here in Pennsylvania, it's only 13. Uh, why only 13 at this point? Well, I think what you find in Pennsylvania is counties are so different in terms of what their uh, their approach may be to a given problem, and they're also very differently resourced in terms of uh, what options they have. Uh, personnel-wise, financing, uh, whether they have good local partnerships between uh, the various agencies that are responsible. For instance, uh, if they have a criminal justice advisory board, which is made up of uh, public officials, the jail staff, uh, the public defender, the district attorney, uh, the treatment providers that are uh, responsible in the county, to come together and do planning. And having those uh, strong um, collaborative um, bodies at the local level uh, is, is one of the things that drives the project like stepping up. Uh, not every county has that kind of relationship, although I know all are working to improve them because they do see the value. Uh, also, not every county is going to experience the same level uh, of, of, of a problem. Now, suffice it to say that all counties are, are challenged when they have mentally ill inmates in their jails. And all counties with jails are telling us that it is the largest growing sector of their population and the hardest for them to address. But the county may have other things that are driving their attention. So one of the things that we've been working on with Dr. Cho and with the Department of Human Services and with the Department of Corrections, uh, our our thanks uh, to them, especially uh, Dr. Cho and and, uh, Secretary Wetzel, uh, is uh, some promotion of stepping up to the counties. 
some education so that they understand what the value would be to be a participant in stepping up and then understanding a bit more about what they would have to do structurally and what they would have to do relationship-wise uh, in their counties in order to make this effective and then start seeing some results. So we've got uh, some educational programming coming up in the form of a webinar and then working together, uh, we're hoping to put on uh, some stepping up uh, conference-style education in the next few months. I would imagine that uh, the, the prisons, the county prisons that have the most inmates uh, who have been diagnosed as uh, mentally ill, and maybe I shouldn't say diagnosed because maybe there are a lot of them who aren't diagnosed, but with a mental illness, uh, are the most populated. Of those 13 counties, do we have a good representation between the highly populated counties, uh, the rural counties, the very small counties? Yeah, actually, we certainly do. Um, the smallest class of county in Pennsylvania is the eighth-class county, and Potter County is a participant in stepping up. Uh, we have counties mid-sized. We have counties that are larger. Uh, so really, it just depends on what their circumstances uh, and their situations are that kind of drive their interest at this point. So it really isn't one-size-fits-all, but it's also not exclusive just to large counties. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the telephone now. Mike is in Camp Hill. Mike, you're on the air. No, guys, thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, one of the things of uh, the incarceration of the mentally ill, another area, too, you have to look at is a dual diagnosis, meaning a substance abuse problem along with the mentally ill problem. Um, until you get, I guess, the diagnosis on either or and start treating the one before the other. Mm -hmm. You bring up a great point, Mike. Thank you very much for your call. Dr. Cho, he's absolutely right. I mean, I had that, uh, that uh, statistic in my introduction that uh, about 75% uh, of those with a mental illness also have a drug or alcohol or both problem as well. How do we deal with, with that dual diagnosis? How do we deal with uh, someone who, okay, maybe someone is looked upon as just having the substance problem, but not a mental illness? How, you know, describe to me how you go about it. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point, and you know, uh, I've, I've seen stats that uh, you know the the prevalence of substance use addiction uh, ranges from 75, 80 percent among people with serious mental illness who are uh, in jails. Uh, you know, this is another place where the science uh, and the the, the the treatment modalities have come a long way. It used to be that uh, we used to treat mental illness and substance use separately. Uh, mental health providers weren't necessarily uh, equipped to be able to deal with addiction issues. Uh, I think that that's changed a lot in, in the recent years where we realize uh, we don't need to overcome one in order to deal with the other, but in fact we can actually treat both um, addiction and mental health uh, in the same way. And I think uh, one, one of the things that uh, has become an important part of treatment is not just thinking that it's uh, psychiatry alone or uh, uh, you know, uh, therapeutic communities alone that are dealing with substance use treatment, but really uh, the right wraparound case management services that helps people really navigate their lives. Uh, you know, cognitive behavioral uh, therapy that is really about changing people's way of thinking. Uh, and then also uh, you, the use of peer recovery supports, which I think has become a really important uh, aspect of, of having people who've had lived experience become the people who are actually engaging folks, um, understanding where they've come from, but also knowing how to talk to them and, and help them um, overcome the day-to-day -day challenges that come with both uh, recovery uh, from addiction as well as from mental health. Ms. Penyak, uh, I think you touched on this earlier, but counties are the ones that deal with both of these issues, uh, not only the mental illness, but also with the substance abuse issues as, as well. So does the Stepping Up program help the counties in any way? 
Oh, absolutely. It, it really does help them understand how best to kind of collaborate uh, with the resources that are available for the treatment side uh, with the correction side. Uh, to understand that um, there are ways to bring uh, various modalities together and then do better assessments, understand uh, the issues and concerns of the people that we're working with, the folks that we're trying to help, uh, and then bringing together the resources uh, financially and otherwise that, that can actually make a difference. So uh, it is very helpful, we believe, to have kind of all collective uh, service approaches at the county level. Uh, which is then enhanced by this uh, support that we're getting now from state government and from our, our national partners. So uh, all things considered, we think that this is a great approach that's going to uh, make a difference very quickly uh, for some jails, or at least in terms of developing policy that's going to have a uh, long-standing uh, uh, ability to change uh, the, the direction that we see going. Secretary Wetzel, you've been a guard, you've been a warden, now you're the Secretary of Corrections. This is not, this is your life. I just wanted to kind of, <laughs> you've seen it from all angles. But, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, is involved in the Stepping Up initiative is training for those who are working in the institutions and police as well. Uh, Dr. Cho talked about uh, some of the programs that are in place already. I mean, we've taken some great strides when it comes to training for law enforcement dealing with those with a, a mental illness. What is needed inside the institution for those who actually work on the floor? Yeah, actually, first and foremost is an area that we've done a horrible job in, which is staff wellness, which is making sure our staff is healthy, our staff um, deal with the same pressures we all do, and then they work in an intense environment. We've, we're way behind on, on focusing on staff wellness. But also, um, in our case, I was confronted by some staff walking through a prison who said, quite simply, you're talking all this stuff about improving mental health services. You don't give us the tools to deal with, with these folks because we don't know what we're dealing with, which is why we went through and trained everybody in the eight-hour mental health first aid course. It's really important that our staff recognize, and, and law enforcement, recognize uh, signs and symptoms of mental illness, and that tailors their response. How we got in trouble is because we didn't ask follow-up questions. If I'm a correctional officer on a housing block with 100 people and I give you an order, I don't have time to wait for you to follow that order. I expect you to follow the order. And if you don't, there's repercussions, right? And so sometimes uh, what we used to do is if someone's seriously mentally ill, we just assumed that the behavior was defiance. Now we try to get to the bottom of it, and perhaps it's not defiance, but it's in fact an individual who has mental illness who's getting in a bad place. So we've focused a lot more on communication skills and identifying that and then developing crisis intervention teams within our prisons. So we have people that we can deploy who are specially trained in communicating and de-escalating in these things. So that's a real critical piece of it. But I can't say enough about staff wellness of first responders and staff wellness of, of folks who work inside jails and prisons. We have to do a better job taking care of our folks. Let's take one more phone call. Rolf is in Juniata County. Rolf, you're on the air. Hi, thank you very much, Scott, for taking my call. Yes, I love welcome. your show. Thank you. I was chief probation officer in Beaver County in 1968, and we had a, a, a boy who kept running away from Western State School and Hospital, and we finally got him because he uh, went into a hardware store, stole a rifle, and started shooting at cars on Route 19 south of Pittsburgh. Uh, we called uh, Western State School and Hospital, and they said they didn't want him. We had our psychologist evaluate him. 
And he said the best program for him is a Western State School and Hospital. So we told the judge that, and the judge said we ordered the child back to Western State School and Hospital and ordered the sheriff to take him forthwith. I called Western State School and Hospital and told them, and they said, well, okay, but he's just going to run away. He was there 45 minutes, and they gave him a pass to go from one building to another, and he ran away. Of course, security became the issue. He ended up uh, being committed to a correctional institution at Camp Hill, which at that time took the younger, younger juveniles. It's been a problem, Secretary Wetzel is right, for over 50 years. What struck me when I was a PO in Pittsburgh and Beaver counties was when we went to school and checked the records, almost all the time, by second or third grade, the teacher had made a comment alerting that there was going to be a problem with the kid. But I don't know. Wow. Um, Secretary and, Wetzel and, is right. We need to get to the counties, but the schools, too. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, he was talking about 1968 and uh, probably a good example of how much has changed and how much hasn't. Yeah, and I, I would just, I think the one thing that, that that caller really brings to mind is, you know, we talked earlier about destigmatization. Um, you know, let's let's just lay labels to the side for a second. These are kids who, who are in trouble and coming into the behavioral health system. These are family members. Um, and it really is incumbent upon us as a society to try to intervene in the least restrictive way we can. And and to his point about training School, schools have come a long way in getting training on both addiction and, and mental health and recognizing them. We just need to put folks in the system that's going to get them back on track. I want to thank uh, all three of you for being with us today. Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel, Richard Cho, Director of Behavioral Health at the Council of State Governments Justice Center, and Brenda Carroll Penyak, Deputy of the County Commissioner's Association of Pennsylvania. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks. Thank you for the opportunity. Very much appreciated. We're going to move on uh, with uh, comedian Paula Poundstone in just a few minutes, but uh, uh, we have someone else who is very entertaining with us uh, for WITF's uh, spring fundraising campaign. WITF's, uh, uh, what are you? You are a multimedia what are you? director. What are you? I'm your boss, pal. <laughs> Tim Lambert is, is with us today. Strike one. Hey, we have a comedian coming up, so you're I'm being funny, okay? All right, that's our spring fundraising campaign. That's right. Three days left. Three days left to make a contribution in support of public radio, in support of WITF, in support of the great conversations you hear each and every day on WITF, on Smart Talk in particular, uh, addressing issues that impact your community, that impact your your county, your state. This is a way for you to have a better understanding of policy decisions and how they impact you. And if that's the type of conversations you like, the type of reporting you want, you demand from a media organization, make that call now. Make that contribution of $5 a month, of $10 a month, of $20 a month, maybe $100 a month. You can go to WITF.org, make that gift, or call 1-800-233-9483. You know, Tim, sometimes it's tough to make that hard turn from uh, talking about a very serious topic like uh, you know how we treat uh, the, the mentally ill mm-hmm. in in prison and 
programs that are trying to, uh, you know, create some alternatives to go to a comedian who appears. But, you know, what I like to think is that uh, variety. It's something I hear very often uh, from Smart Talk listeners is that they appreciate the variety of topics that we have on on the air. But it's not just Smart Talk. It's all over WITF. That's right. And a diverse group of voices as well. You get outside your bubble a little bit. You get outside your comfort zone and you hear issues that you may not be thinking about that might not be on your radar and all of a sudden, hey, that's kind of interesting to me. I want to stop and listen to that for a little bit. So that's what WITF brings to you each and every day, whether it is, you know, as Ben likes to say, you're going to get your vegetables and the hard news and the news out of Washington and news, uh, political news and and uh, serious stuff uh, that that's overseas and things like that. You're also going to get uh, some dessert, too. You're going to have WITF music. You're going to have Paula Poundstone coming on Smart Talk. You're going to have stories that uh, make you laugh and make you smile and, uh, and you learn a little bit about maybe an actor or a musician. So if that is sort of the diversity you're looking for in a media organization, make that call. Support WITF right now. We have a goal of $500 in the next 20 minutes at WITF.org or 1-800-233-9483. It could be that gift of $100 for the year, $100 for the month, $10 for the year, $10 for the month. Whatever you fit into your budget, but you think that we're worth, make that contribution now. Tim, thank you very much. We'll talk to you again in a few minutes. You got it. Paula Poundstone began a stand-up career in the early 80s and made her mark with her wry and sometimes snarky observations of the everyday routines of life. She starred in several cable specials through the 90s and has been a regular staple on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me program. Poundstone continues to tour as a stand-up comic and will appear at Bucknell's Y Center this Saturday. Smart Talk checks in with her to talk about her 40-year comedy career and her take on current events. Paula Poundstone, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much. Hey, okay, now here's one that, uh, you know, I'm not going to try to be the funny one here, but I'm going to throw something out to you, a couple things, and get your take on them. All right, I'm looking at Facebook this morning. I saw one of those top ten lists. This one was for the ten worst college majors for getting a job or having a long, fulfilling career. I didn't see stand-up comedy as a major on that list, so I think that's good news for you. That's very good news. Um, you'd be a fool to go to college for stand-up comedy. <laughs> well, you know, are there colleges? I wonder if there are colleges across this country. Oh, I would hope not. That, that actually have a stand-up co- Why not? They have everything else. Maybe Emerson College in Boston. It sounds like the sort of thing, sort of thing that they would do. Um, yeah, no, it's not, a, it's, it's not an academic pursuit. It's, it's a... You know, open mic nights are college for uh, stand-up comic. You know, open mic nights are the 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 shows at a club where uh, the premise is that anybody who wants to can go up and do five minutes, and and um, that's that's college for stand-up comedy. Is that where you don't got- don't pay any to don't pay anybody to become a stand-up comic? That's a that's a that's a very backwards premise. Well, you know, why not? There, that sounds like uh, something that, I don't know, an op- entrepreneur could come up with. Uh, you know, they have clown college. Well, there college. have been people that have taught, you know, comedy classes and stuff before, but it, it's just a, it's a, it's a sham. Yeah. Well, um, one of these, one of the uh, parts of, of that list talked about long-term job prospects and being having a fulfilling career. Now, getting people to laugh is obviously fulfilling to a comedian, but what fulfills you? Well, that's that's a great one. Um, 
you know, getting to go on stage in front of a people, group of people who come out to laugh for the night is uh, uh, it's such an amazing experience. Um, it's I consider myself a proud member of the endorphin production industry. <laughs> um, and it's, it's not like I don't have table buzzing skills. <laughs> um, but uh, but boy, I do love being a stand-up comic, and it's been a it's been a long run. I, I don't know that I'll always get to be a stand-up comic. I sure do hope so. Um, you know, there may be a time I'll have to. I don't know if I could ever bust tables again, but um, just because it's a job that takes a lot of physical strength. Um, but uh, do you ever have? Uh, I mean, we in radio and TV have often said that, uh, you know, we, we get a little snarky ourselves and say, well, one of these days I'm going to get a real job. Uh, yeah. Do you ever think that way? Yeah, I don't know how to do anything else, honestly. <laughs> so, you know. Um, but uh, uh, I remember a, year, a few years back when, remember when Alabama, in fact, I don't understand why the whole country doesn't learn from this. Do you remember a couple of years ago when Alabama put in place um, and maybe, maybe they didn't make new laws. Maybe they were just enforcing laws on the books about immigration. And what they did was they lost their migrant workers uh, on their farms because of whatever it was they were enforcing. And so, you know, and the philosophy was that these migrant workers were taking American jobs. And so, uh, that's, so now all, all these... Uh, you know, Alabama citizens come in from uh, they they would take buses in from the city to to um, harvest for the farmers, and uh, it turned out that unskilled labor required skill. <laughs> they couldn't make enough money because they got paid by the barrel, and they couldn't make enough money to even make it worth their while to come in from the city and for the for the I don't know for the whole harvest season every night on the news they would show you know the fruits and vegetables in in in, in Alabama rotting on the vine um so one thing I know I couldn't do um is uh pick fruit or vegetables because it it takes years of of learning how to do it in order to make a, a profit speaking of jobs uh you recently spoke about your son applying for a job let's listen my, my son over the summer was supposedly going to get a job and so he was filling out applications he's 16 and in fairness to him he'd not been through the process before but apparently he just when he went to fill out the applications he knew nothing about himself uh, he says to me, he was filling out an application for a place called Paquito Moss, which is a chain Mexican place, and he goes, have I ever worked before? I said, not a bit, honey. And he goes, do, do I have any degrees? I go, sweetie, I think not knowing if you have a degree is the same as not having it, really. All right, did he get the job? He did not. <laughs> I, I wonder I why. I can't say that this upset him in any way. <laughs> it, it was sort of a, it was a bit of a charade that he was going to get a job. Um, uh, uh, so yeah, so I, I think <laughs> he was just as happy now to. Has he has he gotten a job since? He has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has. Um, he's, in fact, he's had a number of jobs since. Getting the job apparently hasn't been the really hard part, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> you know, the the cold hard slap of reality has been the hard part. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of us run into it that at uh, that age. Uh, yeah, do you he get the job, and then he goes, "Oh, so I do this every day." Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that was mind-blowing to him. <laughs> Do your kids ever uh, look at you? I mean, your job is being funny. And most kids do this, especially when they reach the teenage years. But uh, uh, do your kids ever hear your uh, your show or, you know, you say something that you intend to be funny, maybe out in public, and they look at you and give you that look like, oh, Mom, you are so lame. Oh, constantly. You know, my uh, my oldest daughter, who I, uh, I fostered her um, when she was four, and uh, she came to a show. I mean, she didn't come to. I brought her to a show when she was four. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm not exactly sure why I brought her to a show when she was four, but I did. And um, she said, "Oh, you are not funny." <laughs> <laughs> At four years funny. old. Yeah, yeah. I think she. You know, I think she was just uh, my my oldest daughter. Uh, you know, in part because of bouncing around when she was when she was very little, um, has a, a, a sense of human beings um, that is almost you know heat seeking. She knows what to say to uh, to manipulate or or to sort of you know strike with venom. Uh, she's really skilled and has been <laughs> since she was four. <laughs> is she funny? Um, she's really funny, actually. Yeah, she is. In what way? I mean, not just your daughter, but your other kids. I've always wondered about this, whether uh, the children of stand-up comics are funny. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know that they're... I, I don't know that it is their goal in the way that it is my goal to be to be funny. You know, uh, I, I don't know that they look at the world that way all the time, that they're always... I mean, partly because of my job, and it's hard to separate the two anymore at this point in my life. Um, but I, I, my my brain at this point works a little bit like a Roomba. <laughs> um, it, 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 is, it is constantly, you know, bouncing from one thing to the other, um, but scanning the horizon for that which might be funny. Um, and, and not necessarily for purposes of conversation, although that is also the case. Um, but certainly for, uh, you know, for material, I do always have, like, you know, uh, you know at least one antenna up, um, you know, looking for stuff that I think, oh, yeah, that, you know, I can do something with that. And, you know, certainly my kids don't do that. <laughs> We're going to talk more about the material in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest on this portion of the program is comedian Paula Poundstone. She'll be appearing on the campus of Bucknell University at the Weiss Center this Saturday night. Uh, if you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532. You know, we just heard uh, the president, Pre- President Trump. Comedians have been having a field day with the Trump administration. What about you? You can't help it. <laughs> you just can't help it. You know, at one point I was tweeting a debate a while back, and uh, I, I, which is, I love, you, you know, tweeting an event, writing as many jokes about it. I, I do it with the Oscars, or um, I don't know, I did it with a bunch of the debates or the Grammys, uh, just writing as many jokes as I can while the thing is taking place. It's just fun. But um, 
uh, I, yeah, so I'm tweeting a debate one time, and all of a sudden it dawns on me, you know, I, I, I'm not really writing jokes so much as I'm just writing down what he said. Uh, I mean, he just, he does lend himself to comedy. Um, I, I personally would rather he didn't, despite what my job is. I would rather he didn't. I would, I would rather he be remarkably unfunny. Do you have a favorite Trump joke, though? Um, do I have, uh, you know, I don't know that I, have, I, I don't know that I have a favorite Trump joke. I, I can do hours on Trump. I, I, I will say this. When I wake up in the morning and he hasn't said anything stupid, I feel a little empty. <laughs> You've all... You know, are they, are they hosting, you know, here's something that drives me crazy. And I, I hate it when I hear that, when I hear any press person repeat with any kind of seriousness this this thing that you know trump has the nerve to say that mar-a-laga is the white house of the south okay there's one white house right we all agreed a long time ago where the location of you know the presidential home is and it is in washington dc and anything outside of that may be another place that the president is staying, but it is not the White House. You know, it's not a franchise. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe someday, it may be, you know, within uh, the next four years, it may be a franchise. I, I Yeah, yeah, won't be for lack of trying. <laughs> I, you know, so he's going to bring the, so the, the, so the president of China is going to go to... It's going to go to the moral. I I don't know personally. I would feel ripped off as a uh, as a foreign leader, you know, to come and go to his golf place instead of going to this place of his historic significance. I I think that he doesn't. I I don't know. I I don't know. Didn't anybody else think it was weird that Melania Trump? That same thing when the Japanese premier came, they went to uh, uh, the uh, the they went to. Uh, uh, they went to Florida. That's again. That's where. That's where the meeting took place. Was Florida and Melania took the Mrs. Abe, um, the, the the prime minister's wife. Uh, I think that's what they call their their leader. Was the prime minister in Japan? It, Mrs. So Melania took Mrs. Abe. I swear, she took her to Japanese gardens in Florida. <laughs> Don't you think Mrs. Abe went? We have those. It, it just seems like an odd. We well, have nothing uniquely American that we could have taken her to see. <laughs> let's, let's hope that, uh, you know, the, the premier of China is not going to be taken to a Chinese restaurant while we're at it. Uh, you've authored several books, and the latest is The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. Now, that's a challenging subject that humans have been seeking since day one. Now, of course, it's unscientific, so that should make it a little bit easier. What did you find? What makes us happy? Well, I think it's a chemical process, largely, you know. It, it's, um, unfortunately, it's not a romantic answer, you know. My book is a series of experiments. Um, every chapter is written as an experiment. I'm hoping it's the funniest field notes ever written. Um, and I do, I legitimately do the experiment, whatever, you know, whatever the thing was. In one chapter, I go backpacking with my oldest daughter. Um, in one chapter, uh, I, uh, let me think, um, uh, um, in one chapter, I rent a Lamborghini. In w- one chapter, um, I, uh, I watch movies with my with my children all day long. 
which uh, which is a very exotic thing for the Poundstones to do. We 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 usually have a rule, you know, no. Well, a we never watch television, but we we movies and movies and videos were always saved for non-school nights, uh, only at night. Uh, and and anyway, so I would do, whatever the experiment was, I did it, um, and and then I you know I wrote I wrote field notes along the way, uh, uh, but the real proof, uh, the, the the pudding in which the proof was, uh, was uh, how did whatever happiness I may or may not have accrued from doing that particular thing, whatever it was, how well did that hold up? You know, what kind of umbrella did that make uh, for the, you know, rainstorm of life? Uh, you know, when I went back to my regular life, raising three kids and a house full of animals and being a stand-up comic and just being stuck being me, um, you know, how did uh, how did that happiness hold up? <laughs> so, really, it's it's a memoir-ish book. Um, its number one job is to be funny, and I think... I, Think it makes that goal, um, but really, it's a, a memoir-ish book. It's 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 seven years of being me. It took seven years to 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 write. Paula Poundstone is going to be at uh, the Wise Center on Bucknell University campus uh, this Saturday, and you can hear her on uh, WITF's uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Paula, thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, it was nice talking with you. Thanks so much. All right. We'll see you. Tim Lambert, WITF's uh, Multimedia News Director, is with us. It's uh, WITF's uh, spring fundraising campaign. Uh, Tim, always fun to talk to. Uh, I don't know. I always have fun talking to comedians to begin with. But, well, uh, you know, someone who, uh, you know, has a, a national reputation and, uh, you know, has the credentials that a Paul Poundstone has. Yeah, I'd love to be able to write a memoir-ish book, too, someday. That's my goal, I think. I'm going <laughs> to set-ish, yeah. ish, so. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's great that uh, Paula's uh, able to come on the show and be a part of the public media ecosystem, so to speak. And uh, it's always great to to have her on and and uh, hear her insights on uh, what it's like to be a comedian. And and of course, now she's focused on spending that that time uh, finding herself of after leaving the spotlight for a little bit and actually raising a family. Those are the kind of conversations uh, that uh, you like. We hope you make a contribution to WIT. Have some great out pouring of support right now on the phones at WITF.org. You can make a contribution of $5 a month, and then you'll be able to pick up this cool Smart Talk mug. So you can uh, show your your colors and uh, and support Smart Talk that way with a $5 a month contribution at WITF.org or 1-800-233-9483. Or you can make a contribution of $10 a month, of $100 a month, $20 a month, whatever you think fits into your budget. But you want to make sure that you show your support financially for WITF. You're the single source of revenue for us here at WITF, the biggest source of the pie. Uh, we get great corporate support, great foundation support, great support from the state government as well, but you drive this train called public media. Make that contribution now. Help us put us over the goal of $500 at 1-800-233-9483 or go online to WITF.org. Tim, one of the topics that our audience, uh, we know that you appreciate the most, is history. And uh, coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, yes. you know, tomorrow is a, a historic anniversary. You know what it is, right? Yes, I do. What is it? It's the start of the American involvement of World War One. 100th Boom. anniversary, and that's going to be our uh, discussion coming up on uh, tomorrow's program. Tim, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome, Scott. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>